are listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. For more information about our church, visit our website at redrocksbaptist.org or follow us on Instagram at Red Rocks Baptist. What is a catechism? What is a catechism? A catechism is a set of questions and answers that teach basic Christian doctrine. The question and answer format has been used by centuries, and it's especially helpful to teach children truth in a memorable way so they can remember instead of studying you know, systematic theology textbooks, children often learn through questions and answers. And many denominations have official catechisms that they use. Independent Baptists don't have an official catechism. So we kind of have to borrow from bits and pieces over, uh, over a, a broad spectrum here. And I think it's unfortunate that, that our movement has not had many catechisms because it's a really uh, effective way to teach. Last summer, uh, Kate introduced some catechism questions to the summer kids program. And so if you're here as a child, maybe you remember some of these questions. What is our only hope in life and death? The answer is we are not our own, but belong to God. Here's perhaps the most famous catechism question, say that five times fast. You end up sounding, talking like a duck, catechism questions. Here's the most famous one. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. So I'd like to propose to you a catechism question today. Here it is. What can make you spiritually complete? What can make you spiritually complete? Now, the second statement there on the screen is is more of an explanation. In other words, what can reconcile you to God? What can satisfy the eternal longings of your soul? What can make you spiritually mature? Because there has to be one answer for all three things. One answer to make you spiritually complete. What you trust to bring you near to God also has to satisfy you. And has, to, and has to make you spiritually mature. Now, at this point, 98% of you probably have a word or two in your mind. And you may have an answer and you say, I know I'm right because it's the classic answer. But let's, let's step away from what the, the answer on paper would be. And I want to invite you to examine your life. If you had to go back the last couple of weeks and put together or piece together an answer by the way that you have lived... How would your life answer this question? What makes you spiritually complete? How would your choices and your habits answer that? Because the way we live actually shows what we believe. Now in this text, in Colossians 2, 16 through 23, Paul addresses the false teaching that was going on in the church. I I mentioned it several times in the past. And if you are reading kind of the, the commentaries and you're trying to do some, some Bible study, a lot of people kind of get distracted by trying to figure out what exactly this other religion was. It's kind of funny. You get these guys that are, have learned PhDs and they're really smart and they're kind of showing you what's going on in the text and then everybody chases the rabbits over here when they get to this passage. Well, what's Paul's point? Paul's point is not to tell us what's going on. His point is to show us what can and cannot make us spiritually complete. And what Paul does in this passage is eliminate for us three very common answers, 
Three things that people gravitate toward to try to give them spiritual meaning in life. And perhaps you'll see yourself in one of these three answers because I saw myself in one of them. They're very common ways of thinking and ways of living that actually we need to correct our thoughts about. And so by God's grace today, perhaps we can see the truth in a clearer way and correct our thinking and our living. So the question that I'm going to ask over and over again is, what can make you spiritually complete? And the first answer to that is in verses 16 and 17. Let's read it again. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. What can make you spiritually complete? Not religious observances, because these are forms without substance. Paul mentions five things in verse 16 that talk about religious observances, things that we do kind of in the, in the form of religion. And these five things divide into two groups, food laws and holy days. If you're looking at verse 16, food or drink is the first thing he says, and so whatever this false teaching was going on in Colossae, it had, a, it had some dietary restrictions. And this was not unknown in religious circles. Pagans in the Greco-Roman culture offered meat to idols. They had certain things that they would and would not eat at certain times. Certainly, if you read through the Old Testament, you find the same thing. There are a lot of laws about what the Jewish people could and could not eat and when they couldn't eat it and how they had to prepare it. And so this teaching also had some food laws. But then there was also some holy day celebrations. And the pagans definitely had celebrations like that as well. But, but there seems to be a distinctly Jewish flavor to this. Festivals refer to holidays or celebrations like the Passover festival or the Feast of the Tabernacles. New moons, the second thing mentioned there, were religious celebrations, and in the Old Testament, they're often paired with or linked to the festivals themselves. The Sabbath day was, was a classic Jewish uh, issue, a classic Jewish cultural marker, because it was inscribed in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. So we don't know exactly what the false teaching in Colossae was, but we do know this. It had a calendar and it had a menu. It had certain observances for holy days and food laws. And following these restrictions was necessary for spiritual progress. But abstaining from certain foods and observing certain holy days were empty religious practices. And verse 17 explains to us the reason why these things can't complete the believer. Look at verse 17. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So there's a comparison here. These religious practices are simply shadows while Christ is the substance. I think you know what a shadow is. A shadow is, is when the light casts a reflection. The shadow is not the true thing, but a vague outline of something that, that exists. Children love seeing shadows, right? Sometimes they even, you know, do finger puppets or, or pretend like they're a dinosaur, you know, about to eat you. My kids yesterday, we were going for a walk and they were playing the shadow game where they could only step in the shadows. And so they had to position me six times before I could even start walking. They love to play with the shadows. It's kind of fun. 
In ancient times, Plato taught a famous illustration about shadows. It was called the allegory of the cave. And the allegory goes something like this. I'm going to oversimplify it. There are people who are chained in the cave with their backs to the opening. And they can only see the back wall of the cave. But as things happen between the light and the opening behind them, they see shadows. They see reflections in the wall. And they can kind of make out vaguely what's going on. But they only see a fragmented reality. The real world is beyond them. We could debate probably till we were blue in the face whether Paul is referencing that famous illustration or not. But the point here he is making is very clear. These observances and feasts are shadows on the wall, giving a fragmented, a partial picture of reality. Who is the true light? The Lord Jesus Christ. He is the substance. Think of it this way. I know this is kind of complicated at times. Think of it this way. Old Testament feasts like Passover celebrated certain things. Passover was when the Jewish people celebrated being redeemed from Egypt by God's strong and mighty arm. They, they killed the lamb and put the, the blood on the doorposts. But it wasn't just a remembrance for the past. What also was Passover doing? It was preparing them for the lamb of God who would come to redeem them from their sins. And so when Jesus came and died at Passover, the true Lamb of God had come. The the shadow of Passover was fulfilled in Christ. And what Paul is arguing here is that continuing to live in the shadows and observe the shadows doesn't make sense when the true light has come. Don't step backward in salvation history. And so if religious forms and religious practices can't make you complete, then how do we respond? And Paul gives an interesting answer. It's at the beginning of verse 16. He says, don't let anyone judge you. Because the Colossians didn't need to observe these things, they would come under the scrutiny of other people. They would be pressured to conform, perhaps mocked for not participating in the food restrictions or Holy Day celebration. What Paul says, essentially, is stand firm in Christ. Stand firm in your liberty. They shouldn't let anyone else look down on them. Now, it's passages like these that illustrate the need for us to extrapolate principles because it's hard to know how this applies to us today, 2,000 years later. Well, what's Paul teaching? How does it apply to us today? I think there are two ways that it applies. First, coming to Christ means we forsake other religious practices. And if you've been saved out of a Catholic background or you've been saved out of a cult like a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness background, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The last two weeks in missions conference, we've heard about reaching Mormons in Utah and Catholics in Spain and Peru. Let's use these two faiths as an example. Both of these religions have dietary restrictions and religious celebrations. For example, Mormons aren't allowed to drink coffee, tea, and alcohol. I mean, not allowed to drink coffee, I'm out. (laughs) Just right there. During Lent, Catholics don't eat most meats. These are food laws. And when a person comes to faith from one of these backgrounds, they will stop observing these practices. Now, is there anything wrong with abstaining from meat if you want? No, but it's not an essential part of our religion. It's not an essential part of our relationship to Christ. 
And so if you've come out of one of these backgrounds, what's going to happen? There's going to be family pressure. There's going to be cultural pressure. There's going to be community pressure. You may be mocked or shamed or isolated. Why? To get you to return to your former religion. To go through the motions again of the faith. And if you've experienced that type of pressure, my heart goes out to you. Praise God that you've come out of that and have come to Christ. You can be encouraged by Paul's instructions here. He says, don't let anyone judge you. Don't don't let anyone pressure you. Don't let anyone be judgmental toward you. So stand firm in Christ. You don't have to abide by those things any longer because they don't make you complete. Only Christ does. Well, there's a second principle to apply. One, I think, that strikes a little closer to home for, for many of us. Spiritual life is not attained by doing religious rituals. Spiritual life does not come about by simply participating in a religious observance. What do I mean? How many people regularly gather in churches all across America thinking that by just showing up, they've done their religious duty? Should we come to worship? Should we gather here? Yes. (laughs) You voted with your feet today. Yes, we should. But just Sitting in a pew, does that do anything for you spiritually? Not, not necessarily. Even born-again Christians can slip into this mindset because when we start to think that just showing up to church on Sundays is all that God requires of us, and whoop, I've checked off that duty, I'm good to go. We've missed what Christ is all about. Don't trust the form of religion instead of the substance. Because showing up to worship doesn't make you godly. What does? It's participation. It's coming and saying, I'm drawing near to God with my fellow redeemed siblings. It's worshiping Christ. It's sitting under the preaching of the word and responding to it by faith. That's what changes us. It's your heart's response to God and and the word that draws us close to him. So yeah, these, these food laws, these religious festivals may be a little bit unique for us, but, but they apply to our culture too. We can't trust the motions, the rituals of our faith to make us godly. It's the heart behind it. Since re- religious forms and practices can't make you complete, let's go to another option. What about spiritual experiences? What about spiritual experiences? This is something a lot of people in our culture want, right? They want a mystical experience. They want to go and and feel something spiritual. They want to commune with with a higher power. Verses 18 and 19 address this. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Verse 18, like verse 16, opens with a command. But let's start in the middle of verse 18 and see how Paul describes what was taking place. He describes these experiences. What can make you spiritually complete? Not spiritual experiences, because these exalt self. Now, verse 18 has an incredible amount of of intrigue to it. If you're reading from 
a modern translation like the ESV or the NASB or, or the NIV, you probably noticed that your translation doesn't quite match the New King James that we're using here for the pulpit. There's a lot of variety in how this verse is translated. And there are, trust me, pages and pages and pages of theories about what these refer to. And I'm not going to bore you with that, okay, so you can exhale. The common denominator in all these things is that they all focus on spiritual experiences. What does Paul mention? He says, first, taking pleasure in false humility. And this is probably the false humility that the leader or the lead teacher had. It was a, it was a, it was a piety that was put on to appear to be humble, but really there was an arrogance there. Because this teaching believed themselves to be superior. These, this teacher and his followers believed themselves to be superior because of all their special experiences. Now, some translations refer to asceticism here instead of false humility. Asceticism disciplines the body in severe ways to gain a higher level of godliness. Perhaps the food and drink restrictions prepared the devotee to see visions as they sought to worship angels, which is the next thing Paul mentions. He says, insisting on worshiping angels. So either this, this teaching worshiped angels directly, or we can interpret the phrase, the, the, the same kind of worship that angels had. Either way, there, there's a, a, an elite level that's going on here that people are being initiated into, perhaps even with visionary experiences. And this infatuation with angels in this worldview is why Paul proclaims Jesus to be superior to them over and over and over again. He is the head of all principalities and powers. He is their creator and their conqueror. Well, the third thing that he mentions in verse 18 is intruding into those things which he has not seen. And that implies that the, the leading teacher or, or the followers brashly talked about things that they had no business talking about. And that certainly could be the case. The wording also could imply that these people boasted about their visions. For example, the English Standard Version says, going on in detail about visions. And, and the visions here provided the teacher with a secret knowledge, which is the classic staple of cults and fringe groups. To be in the club means that you know the secret handshake and you can recite the secret password. So, so these people had... Either they boasted about what they had seen or they're involved in, in visionary experiences and now they're talking about it because they think they're more spiritual. And the result is that they're puffed up in pride. The end of verse 18, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. And it's easy to see how pride is the natural result of people who think that they've attained a higher level of spirituality. If I've been experiencing visions that you don't have, well, <laughs> draw the conclusion that makes me better than you. That's what they were saying. These practices excluded those not in the know and gave those who were a sense of superiority. Well, what's the problem with these things? There are a host of them. But the one that Paul goes after is actually very interesting. It's a little surprising. He says that the problem with these experiences is that they cut you off from the head. And yes, that's a graphic image that he is using. By worshiping lesser beings or, or trying to gain a secret knowledge, something like that, what these people were doing is, is trying to live their Christian life apart from Jesus. Jesus was good enough to kind of get them in the faith, but, but he's not sufficient enough 
to get them into the highest levels of knowledge, to get them closest to God. And what they were doing is actually cutting themselves off from their very head. If a body part is severed from the head, what happens to the body part? It dies. If we sever a person just below the head, the whole body dies. Paul makes two points here about this in verse 19. It's the head that holds the whole body together in unity. If you go back to Colossians 1.18, Jesus is the head of the body, the church. As the head, he unites all the parts of the body together. We are, as this text says, we are knit together. And so when we know the Lord and we draw close to the Lord, we actually draw closer to one another because we're being unified in the body. No member of the body is more important than another. And again, in this teaching, if you had these special experiences, you were on the elite level. You were a VIP Christian. But Paul's saying, no, there's no Christian that's better than another. We're all attached to the head. And it's the head that holds us together. The second thing he says is that the head, Jesus, is what grows the whole body. We're nourished when we're f- and we're fed when we're attached to him, not when we're trying to chase other experiences. The last phrase of verse 19 is, is actually a redundant phrase to drive home the point. It says in the New King James, with the increase that is from God, grows with the increase. It literally says, grows with a growth that is from God. So how does someone grow spiritually? It's only from God by being attached to the head. Spiritual experiences don't mature you. Abiding in Christ does. Therefore, Paul says in verse 18, don't let anyone rob you of your spiritual vitality, your spiritual life, your spiritual growth. Don't be robbed by thinking you need experiences to grow spiritually. What you actually need is more of Christ. You need to abide in the vine, John 15. And as the branch abides in the vine, what happens? It bears much fruit. Many people believe that spiritual experiences, whether these are visions or dreams or 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 just an overwhelming sense of spiritual power or crisis moment that I just need to feel. These things don't spiritually fulfill you. In fact, seeking it and desiring these things is exactly what 1 John 2.16 condemns. 1 John 2.16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. You see, the pride of life is the lust for experiences. Your faith in Christ does not depend on what you feel. Your walk with Christ is not therapeutic. And yet, that's what so many Christians unwittingly believe that Jesus exists for. Jesus doesn't exist to make you feel good. You exist to worship him, and there will be greater joy and peace when you treasure him. You you see the difference? We don't come to Jesus for his therapeutic benefits. We come to Jesus because he's the Lord of the universe, the only one who can reconcile us back to God. And when we do, what does he say in Matthew 11? Come to me, take my yoke upon you, and you will find rest for your souls.
The rest is not found in chasing these dreams or visions or experiences. It's in following Christ. We don't receive Christ because he makes me feel good. We receive him as the only hope for forgiveness of sins. So that's a second answer to our question that Paul just totally demolishes. Yet, he saved his most devastating critique for last. Though religious observances and spiritual experiences can't make you complete, what about following rules and regulations? Notice what he says in verses 20 through 23. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. What will make you spiritually complete? Not rules and regulations, because they can't restrain sin. And there's a beautiful freedom here. Rules and regulations are what Paul is talking about. He describes these things in verses 21 through 23. They deal with physical things that deteriorate. Notice the commands in verse 21. And the New King James has it set off in quotes. Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. Perhaps he's even quoting a mantra or, or some of the specific regulations of this other worldview. These rules dealt with physical things that deteriorate. That's what perish with the using means there in verse 22. They deteriorate. They wear out as you use them. The second description of these rules is that they're based on man's teachings and traditions. And he said this back in verse 8, that these false views come and are sourced in man's authority. These rules did not come from Scripture. They came from men. The third thing in verse 23 is that they have an appearance of wisdom. They appeal to people because there's a semblance of wisdom. There's, there's self-imposed religion. There's a lot of things that I've got to follow to, to do right. There's false humility. Hey, you know, we're just struggling, but, you know, we're just, we're keeping our rules. Here, asceticism is specifically mentioned, neglect of the body. And to those who are trying to work for spiritual fulfillment, these things are very, very appealing. If you want to go back to a famous example, think about Martin Luther, the great monk turned born-again believer who started the Reformation. What drove him to despair was legalism because he tried to follow rules. He actually practiced asceticism. He went to a famous visit in Rome and, and crawled up the stairs of, of the cathedral there to gain favor with God and said it felt empty. Why? Because rules can't make you complete. What do we call someone who adds extra rules to the Christian life and believes that following these rules will produce spiritual fruit and make God pleased with them? What do we call that person? Call them a legalist. And, and sometimes that term legalist is thrown around at anyone who has standards or convictions. Okay? We're not talking about that. Legalism believes that God approves of me and I grow spiritually because of the life I live and because of the rules that I keep. Are there rules in the Christian life? 
If you've read your Bible recently, yeah, there are things that we're supposed to do and not supposed to do. But is just checking the boxes, is that what makes us grow? The answer is no. Does anyone here struggle with legalistic thinking? <laughs> Any of you or is it just me? We, we struggle with this today. This is not an isolated incident in the first century. And, and legalism can creep into our hearts in very subtle ways. Following rules doesn't make God love us more or bring more favor. He graces us day after day because of our relationship to Christ. And I've appreciated Jerry Bridges, uh, and he's written several, several works. And he addresses this, this thinking, this legalistic thinking in his book, The Discipline of Grace. Here's what he says. Many Christians, this is how he opens it. This is like in the introduction. Many Christians think that although we are saved by grace, we earn or forfeit God's blessings in our daily lives by our performance. That's wrong. He continues, regardless of our performance, we are always, always dependent on God's grace, his undeserved favor to those who deserve his wrath. Your, listen to him, your worst days are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. Yet so many Christians, myself included, slip back into a rules-oriented Christian life. Why do we do that? I'll just answer for myself. It's because it's simple. Show me the list, I'll follow the list. Show me where the bar is, I'll jump over it. Following rules seems simpler, but there's a massive flaw with a rules-based life. And here's the flaw. Paul identifies it at the end of verse 23. For all the rules that are heaped on a person, rules can't stop sin. Your flesh doesn't play by the rules. Your sin nature and the temptations to sin don't look at a rule, if, if we can personify them, and say, oh, they've got a rule about that. Guess I can't tempt him today. Guess I can't tempt her about that. If you fall into the pattern of, of thinking that rules will stop sinning, you will end up overburdened and driven to despair because there is no rule that can prevent you from sinning and you will therefore never, ever measure up. James 1 says that temptation arises from our hearts. So let me ask you this. Can you set up a rule to prevent your heart from lusting? Can you prevent your heart from coveting? Can a rule prevent you from being selfish or proud? No. People who are in legalistic churches or have a works-based view of the Christian life are driven to despair. They're filled with anxiety because their souls are so burdened under the weight of performance that they can't measure up. And maybe that's you. Maybe you've walked in today thinking, you know, I've just got to do my religious duty and I, you know, I, I missed my devotions once this week so eh, I got knocked down a little bit less on, on the list of God's favorites. Be free of that. Be free of it. The answer is not found in law but in grace. And when Christ came, John 1, it was grace upon grace. No rule can do 
what Christ promises. So how do we think differently? We, we actually need to rehearse the truth of the gospel. You need to remember your identity in Christ and how you're united to him and how, and how Christ died on the cross and set you free from sin. And ironically, that's exactly what verse 20 does. If you look back at verse 20, the reason Paul gives for us to, to be free from rules is because we've died with Christ. So don't turn back to these things. You were united to Christ at salvation, which means you died with Christ and rose with Christ. That's what baptism pictures. We're going to have a baptism, several of them next week. Christ's death and resurrection broke the power of sin. And when we are united to Christ, Jesus is our living Savior, and sin's power is broken in your life too. Why look to rules to accomplish what Christ has already done? And certainly, we obey the scriptures, we follow God's commands, but our spiritual growth is not found in meticulous keeping of the scriptures. There are millions of people who follow rules and have no relationship with Christ. The secret to our spiritual growth is Colossians 2, 6, and 7. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you've been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. If you've come today under the, the, the burden of living by rules, look to Christ. See the freedom that's there. Because when you bend your neck into the yoke that he calls for, burdens fall away. Burdens are lifted. Because your relationship with Christ provides you with the grace you need to grow. Rules cannot impart grace. Only Christ can. Yet our fetish with performance runs deep. And, and, and we have to confront the legalism in our hearts kind of over and over again, truthfully. Because it's there and it, and it rears its ugly head. Remember, checking off spiritual habits doesn't make you godly. Perhaps you've been taught to read your Bible to grow daily. Maybe you've even sung the song, read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. Is that true? Sort of. <laughs> now I have your attention. Can you grow without reading your Bible, without praying? Absolutely not. But can you read your Bible and, and glean no benefit from it? I've been there. Simply reading your Bible doesn't make you godly. So why do we read our Bibles? Why do we pray every day? It's because through this book, we see the face of Christ. We learn to glory in our treasure and when we exalt Christ and draw near to him, the spirit of God, 2 Corinthians 3.18, changes us into the image of Christ day after day. We see Christ in the word and therefore we are changed. Or how about this? Simply following rules doesn't make you holy. If you simply followed the Bible's commands and lived without violating a law, are you holy? Maybe. But you would also be in the same category as the Pharisees who were really meticulous about keeping the law, and yet what happened? They abandoned love for God and love for neighbor. They lusted and coveted in their hearts and put burdens on people that they couldn't bear. Why? Because they taught a legalistic religion. Holiness involves both body and soul. Your heart can hate God and love all sorts of filth, but your life can be clean on the outside. In fact, 
Jesus said that the Pharisees were like whitewashed tombs, painted beautifully on the outside, but full of dead man's bones on the inside. We also have to remember that our standards are not God's law. Our standards, my standards of the Christian life are not the same as God's law. How quickly we judge others when they don't measure up to us. Well, I've got a standard. Well, of course you have a standard, and of course you think it's right. If you didn't think it was right, you wouldn't have that standard. But according to the scriptures, it is possible for other Christians who are walking with Jesus and loving him with all their heart, it is possible for them to draw the line slightly different places than you, and they're still godly. And so that's why, how, and that's how we see legalism and judgmentalism become partners in crime. When, when we have our rules and we exalt our standard, obviously we look down and we, we put other people down because we're comparing ourselves. Because our religion is all about what we do. And if other people aren't doing as much as us, what does that mean for us? It means we're better. It's a totally wrong way of thinking. There's no grace in legalism. I don't rec- receive grace from God and I certainly don't pass grace on to others. So rules will never transform your life and make you spiritually complete. So let's ask our question again. What can make you spiritually complete? Christ and Christ alone. Only Jesus can bring you into a relationship with God. Only Jesus can grow you into spiritual maturity. Only Jesus can satisfy you in this life and in the life to come. Only Jesus can make you spiritually complete. And this is the glorious message of the gospel. This is the good news that you don't have to live as an enemy of God. You can be reconciled to him. You can have purpose in life when you come to faith in Christ. Colossians 2, 8 through 15 proclaims this truth. In fact, in Colossians 2, 10, it just simply says, you are complete in him. That's the truth that this text applies. And verses 11 through 15 show us that it's through our union with Christ that the old man has been circumcised and stripped away. You died with Christ and rose again with him. Your sins have been forgiven, wiped clean, having them nailed to the cross. That's what happened at salvation. At salvation, you weren't handed a list of rules. You were introduced to two nail-scarred hands. Why then do we battle against these temptations? Why is it that, that rituals and experiences and laws and rules hold sway on us? I think it's this. Because these religious things make us feel religious. They appeal to our works-based heart because they all focus on performance and what I do. But praise God, our relationship to him is not based on your performance. When we recognize that we're complete in Christ, we rest in him. We don't, this is the sufficiency of Christ all over again. We don't need anything else because Christ is the substance that religious forms point to. Christ is the head who nourishes his body. Christ did what rules could never do. He broke the power of sin. And if you have Jesus... And if you're complete in him, then what more do you need? 
Let me try to draw this together with one final illustration. What makes my family the Sparkman family? What makes your family your family? Is it the celebrations we observe together? Like Father's Day? Tomorrow my son has a birthday. Is it the experiences we have, like going on vacation? Is it, is it the family rules that we all kind of have to follow? Well, no, that's, that's not what makes us a family. We, do we have all those things? Absolutely, yes. We have things we celebrate. We have experiences we enjoy. We have rules that we follow. But those things don't make us a family. We're a family because of our relationships. Ten years ago, in two months and 14 days, something like that, uh, 13 days, Kate and I stood at an altar at a church and we exchanged vows and we entered the covenant of marriage. We were united to one another and we started a new family. And as each boy was born, they were born into our family. It's the relationships that we have that make us a family. How then does a person become spiritually complete and become part of God's family? By attending church, by seeking an emotional experience, by following rules, It's through a relationship with Christ. The Bible refers to salvation as being united to Christ. It also refers to salvation as being born again. Will we have rituals or observances that we engage in? Things that we experience, maybe even rules and standards that we follow as Christians or as a church? Yeah, we're in some way observing a ritual right now. We come together every week to worship. We have these things But none of these things make us complete. Instead, the effectiveness of these things is found when they exalt Christ. When they help us to prioritize our relationship with Christ and help us to treasure him more. Why do we come to worship? We don't come to check off a box. If you notice, we don't take attendance on the way in and out of our morning service. We come to worship and to mingle with our our fellow brothers and sisters As we walk with the Lord, will we have spiritual experiences? Will we see answers to prayer? Will we have seasons of our life where where, where we feel his presence more intensely? Yes. Are there things that we should and shouldn't do as Christians? Yes. What's the point? None of these things are bad if they're used in the right way. When they help us to treasure Jesus more deeply, they're in their proper place. But when they are the end goal of our faith, when we trust in them, we have become idolaters of the worst sort. Idolaters who believe themselves to be godly. So if you've been trusting in these things for salvation, turn your heart to Jesus. Forsake these things. Receive him by faith. It doesn't matter how many worship services you attend how many rules you follow. These things can't make you right with God only by being born again. Can you become part of God's family? And if you're a believer who has treasured your performance or exalted your experiences above Jesus, then repent. Turn your mind away from those things. Turn your gaze back to Christ. And the gospel tells us that when you do this, your burdens will be lifted when you stop trusting in even good things to do what Jesus alone can do. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we we look at a text like this 
and it, it confuses us perhaps at the beginning, but as we get into it more and more, we realize how applicable these things are and how easily our hearts stray, how quickly we become works-based in our thinking and legalistic in our outlook. Instead of receiving grace and showing grace, we're far quicker to measure ourselves and to judge others and to compare what we're doing. And Father, we, we confess that it's wrong. We confess it as sin. We pray that you would forgive us. As we go through this week, we pray that Christ would become more precious to us, that he would be more sweet as we walk with him day by day, looking to him to satisfy us and to grow us and to make us complete in a way that these other experiences and things will never be able to do. Thank you for the kindness that you've showed in sending him to be our savior. In his name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. If you enjoyed this content, please consider sharing it with others. Our mission at Red Rocks Baptist Church is to know Christ and to make him known. May God bless you as you follow him.